Father, we're asking you to meet us this morning in your word, by your spirit. God, you're a good father that loves to encourage us. And we want to do well at loving you, but also loving others that we have authority over, whether it's fathers or mothers or bosses. God, would you help us see what's true this morning? Would you hold a mirror up to our hearts and that we would be honest with some of our behavior that needs to get changed, not in our own power, but in your power and in our position in you, Jesus. We need help with that. We all have wounds from our fathers at multiple levels, and we're so thankful that you, our Father, are perfect and right, and we can continue to go to you. And so give us eyes to see this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to be transformed, to look more like your son, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Why do you think we bully each other as humans? Like, why is that somewhat normal practice in our culture? Uh, we were watching a TV show last week, uh, and it's kind of a, a drama comedy, and it's set in high school, and the first scene, uh, they're in the parking lot, the high school parking lot, and all the kids are there, and the teacher's walking up, and there's this scene, like the, the very beginning, it's these uh, kind of five jocks standing around the dumpster with this kid who's not very popular, and he's about to get thrown into the dumpster by these guys, and he just kind of accepts it, and he gives them his bag. That's kind of like, okay, I know this is going to happen, but at least don't let my homework get messed up. And he gives them the bag, and then he gets thrown into the dumpster, and they all kind of laugh and kind of chuckle at each other, and it just feels like normal. Why is that okay? And I know that there's been a lot of anti-bullying kind of language out in the last kind of decade, which I appreciate, but let me just define what I mean by bullying, because I think it's going to help us as we look at our text this morning. When I say bullying, here's what I mean. Using authority that you have to improperly impose your will at the cost of someone else. Using the authority you have at some level to improperly impose your will on someone else. What does it look like in our lives? And what Paul is going to get to here is he's talking specifically about children and fathers and parents and do not provoke your children. I, you could argue that word could be bully. Don't bully your children. Don't provoke them. Don't poke at them. Don't do things that make them discouraged. And when you do the research about bullying and what, what causes it, like why do we do that to one another, it's really interesting what you find. You find out that typically um, the, the kid being bullied is not because he's different or, or kind of nerdy or whatever. Usually it's more about the person doing the bullying than it is about the object that they're bullying. And when you do any type of research uh, psychologically, and there's tons of it out there uh, at this, you, you begin to find out that the people that are doing the bullying, they are um, manifesting certain things in an unhealthy way with an object or a person that they can get away with doing that to. And so there's four things that continue to rise to the surface when you look at the data when it comes to the person that is doing the bullying. Here are the four. The first is they have power and control issues. They don't feel like they have control. They don't feel like they have power in other areas of their life. And so this is a way to kind of manifest that control or grab control or have power that they don't have in other areas. That's one 
tangible thing that happens. The other, number two, is that there's stress and trauma in their lives. People that are bullying others, they have some type of stress, some type of trauma that they have in their life, even if they don't uh, know about it or aren't aware of it, and they're manifesting this bullying because of that stress and trauma in their life. The third reason is they have low self-esteem or they're insecure. Right? They seem really secure because they're doing these things, but actually they're really insecure and they really have low self-esteem, which is why, if you look historically, why junior high is prime space for bullies to happen because in junior high, your body's changing. You don't know who you are. You're feeling all types of insecure. So again, power and control, stress and trauma, low self-esteem or insecurity. And the last uh, thing that seems to be consistent with the reason people bully other people is because they have bad modeling at home. They've been bullied by uh, a sibling or maybe their dad or maybe their mom. And so they've just realized this is the way life works and this is what you do. This is what was done to me and this is what I'm going to do to you. Diane Langberg, in her recent book, which I would highly recommend, uh, her recent book is called Redeeming Power. The subtitle of the book is Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. It's a really good read. It's deep and it's hard to read, but it's really, really good. She says this. She says, our responses to the vulnerable expose who we are. This is an important principle to keep in mind as we consider the use and misuse of power. Later on in the book, she says, vulnerability and power are intertwined, engaged in a dance that is sometimes beautiful and sometimes destructive. As we look at our text this morning, and really it's kind of wedged in these uh, three weeks that we've been. Last week, we talked about uh, husbands and wives. This week, we're talking about children's and, and parents and fathers. And then next week, we'll talk about servants and uh, uh, people that are employing those servants. And all of these things, we're slowing down intentionally because what Paul is addressing, we'll get the context in a minute, but really what he's going after is how you use your agency that you have. You have agency and how you use your authority, how you use your power behind closed doors. And really what he is after, as we've talked about, and we'll continue to talk about at the end of chapter one, Paul lays out the whole reason he's in ministry, the whole reason he's in prison, the whole reason he's doing what he's doing is in uh, chapter one, verse 20, he says, so that I can present you what? Mature in Christ. Paul is saying, I don't want you to stay in your adolescence. There's a growth process. You should move out of that. I don't want you to stay in infancy. You should move out of infancy into maturity, into adolescence, out of adolescence into maturity as what we would call an adult. He's saying, in Christ, I have a buddy that I knew for a long time in ministry, and he was from kind of the Bible Belt, grew up in the Bible Belt, and anytime we'd be in a Bible study and we'd go around and introduce ourselves, he would say his name, and then he would kind of give this disclaimer like, you know, I grew up going to church my whole life, and I can't do his accent, it was a southern accent, but he, he would say like, I'm like a third grade level Christian, and he's been a Christian his whole life. But for some reason, he doesn't want to move into maturity because there's a cost to move into maturity. And I'm going, dude, you got to move past the third grade. Like God wants more for you. He wants more for us. And he wants more as Paul is writing to this group that is beginning to get pulled away from the culture that is stunting their growth and maturity. 
And there's kind of two main groups that are, are drifting or pulling them away from this maturity. It's the Jewish religious leaders and their law and their practices kind of mixed with religion. And it's the Greek philosophers, the way they think about life, the way they do life. Both of those groups that Paul is addressing, really starting in chapter 2, are pulling these people away from who they are in Jesus. And it's stunting their growth. And there's groups that are pulling us away from what we believe about Jesus, even if sometimes they're in the subculture of the church. They're pulling us away, telling us we need to do these certain things, and it's pulling us away from our identity in Christ, which should cause growth and maturity. So Paul says, like, don't, don't, don't get caught up in those empty philosophies. Don't get pulled away from those things in chapter 2. And then chapter 3, he starts giving practical implication of, okay, if you're not trying to get pulled away, how do you not get pulled away? And in chapter 3, he says, listen, you need to seek Christ. You need to set your mind on him. If you just wake up and you're not intentional with what you're thinking about and what you're doing with your life, you're just going to get caught in that drift. And it'll stunt your growth and maturity. He says that at the beginning of chapter 3, and then he turns the corner. He starts to give some practical application. Okay, this is the way you used to walk. All these things you used to do, but because of your position, you put those things to death. You take those things off. You put on these things, love and gentleness, kindness. Bind them up with love, which is like harmony. And then he gets even more specific in the way he talks about behind closed doors with your husband and your wife and your children and your uh, parenting and then, again, in the work relationship. And what I really want us to understand and come away with today from this section, and it really plays out in the three sections that we're looking at, but we'll drill down to it a little bit more this morning, is how you use your agency, how you use your agency and your authority are indicators of your maturity. How you use your agency and your authority are indicators of your maturity. When I say agency, I mean the opportunity that you have to make free choices. And in this culture, what Paul is going to say, which we'll talk about, is you now have agency because of Jesus that you did not have before, especially as he addresses certain types of people in the culture that had zero agency. How do you handle that agency? And then what about the people that have authority? People that have authority in the culture, how are you handling or wielding that authority that you've been given to by God? So again, the text, let's look at it down at your Bible. Um, chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 20 and 21 says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What do we find out about agency here in this text and others. And, and, and what we have to understand, which we won't uh, read if you just are reading at face value and don't understand the cultural context of what's going on, what is, or who does Paul address in these kind of three sections first? First, last week we talked about he addresses wives first, and then he addresses who here first in our text? He addresses children first. And then next week we'll look at who he addresses first. He addresses servants first. Now, this would have been mind-blowing culturally at the time because in the culture, it was a male-dominated culture. Right? And so if Paul were to walk in this building right now or anybody were to walk in this building right now, they're looking for the person of authority. 
They would walk in, men would walk into other spaces and they would look for the father of the household because he had ultimate authority over the entire household, which included uh, his wife, which included his children, which included the servants that worked with him in the midst of that household. And they would go straight to the father and maybe the mother would come up. They would not even address the mom. They would not even acknowledge her existence. They wouldn't acknowledge the existence of the children. They wouldn't acknowledge the existence of the servant because they only want to talk to the person with authority. And what Paul is doing in this moment, even as he addresses those people first, do you know what he's doing? He's going, you have value. You have value. The culture doesn't dictate your value. You have value because what is true of you in Christ, you now have agency. And he talks about in chapter 1, verse 13, that because of what has happened in your heart and life with Jesus, you have moved from this domain of darkness into this kingdom of light. And because of that, you now have agency. You now have choice. You now have value that you did not have in the culture. This would have been mind-blowing for the people at the time. Go, Paul's actually going to address me as a wife? Paul's actually going to address me as a child? There's something I need to learn. I have responsibility in this thing we're doing called the household of God. And in chapter 3, verse 11, which is right on the heels, these are all connected to one another. In verse 11, Paul is saying, listen, uh, here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. Christ is all and is in all. He's saying, listen, the playing field is leveled because of Jesus. You now have value and worth. Can you imagine if somebody, a CEO or maybe uh, the commissioner of the NBA, David Silver, came into the arena where Michael Jordan is the owner. Instead of going to Michael Jordan, he comes to the janitor. And he says, you actually have just as much worth as the owner of this organization. You have agency in the midst of what we're trying to do. Because why? Because of Jesus. You have value. And the culture was saying, you don't have any value. And Paul is saying, oh, you do have value. Children, you have value in the midst of obeying your parents. And now we all have father wounds on multiple levels, right? Like even some of this verse is like, well, what does everything mean? What if my parents are idiots? (laughs) Does that mean I have to obey them in everything? Right? Some of what we talked about last week. What if my husband is leading me incorrectly? Do I have to submit to that? And I don't think Jesus is advocating or Paul is advocating for that type of obedience. But what he is saying is when you have agency, your purpose changes. You don't follow your husband because he's so amazing. You don't uh, obey your parents because they're always right. You don't follow uh, your master when you're a servant because they know everything. No, what does it say? Look at it. It's peppered through and through this whole section. You do it last week. We talked about as is fitting to the Lord. What does the, the end of 20 say? Because it pleases the Lord. And on and on again. When you have agency, you're looking past the person that has authority over you. And you're looking to Jesus. And that's why you do what you do. And it gives you a total different freedom, a total different way of living. Because now you don't get log jammed by the person that has authority over you. You're looking past them to making your decisions based on who Christ calls you to be. So the first thing we see is that you have agency. And Paul is giving value to folks that in the culture did not have value. How we use our agency and authority are indicators of our maturity And we need to handle our agency well. 
If you have a boss that's over you, if you're in a, a situation where somebody has authority over you, and, and man, it's just hard to um, deal with them. If maybe you're, you're an athlete and you have a coach that, man, you just disagree with what's happening, can you still love Jesus by the way that you obey them if they're not calling you to do immoral things? That's challenging. But that's what God calls us to in the midst of our agency. What about our authority? What does that look like? And really, I think it's worth asking the question, like, is, is authority bad? I remember it's a couple years ago, we were having conversations about the culture and even um, our nation as a whole in seminary. And the professor asked the question, like, is power bad inherently? Is it good inherently? Is it neutral inherently? And then there were a lot of people that had a lot of things to say about that. Because <laughs> what do you do with power? Is power or authority inherently evil? I think a helpful metaphor in this is the idea of fire. Like fire in itself isn't evil or isn't good, but the way the fire is handled is what makes it good or bad. If it's put uh, uh, to, to heat a home or to heat somebody or to cook something, man, it's good in its proper context, but in its improper context, it's really dangerous and really harmful. The same is true with power. And when we look at the idea of authority or power, we have to ask ourselves, where does it actually come from? That was always a good starting point when we ask, is this good or bad? And we go back to Genesis 1, verse 26, when God is making creation. He makes humans, and this is what he says. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let us have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So God makes man and woman in his image. And he says, part of reflecting my image is how you handle authority. And I'm actually going to give you power. I'm going to give you authority over all these things in the creation. Notice he doesn't give them authority over each other. That's kind of interesting. He gives them over authority over creation. Right, gives them authority over creation. And so our job as image bearers is to handle that authority well as we would see God handle it. So power or authority is inherently natural in being human from what we see there. Even the most vulnerable of humans have authority or they have power. Our good friends Josh and April Miles had a baby a week ago. His name is Jude uh, Ellis Miles, which is awesome. And he's eight days old. Tiny, weak. You're like, this kid doesn't have any power. <laughs> but when Jude wakes up in the middle of the night, <laughs> he doesn't have any words. He can't express himself like we can express ourselves as adults. But when he goes, ah, something's not right as he's thinking in his head, and he starts to cry, two full-grown adults wake up in discomfort and move towards him. He has power. We all have power as humans. Now, on the other end, his parents have power too. They can choose not to wake up because of the discomfort. They can choose to go, ah, it's not worth it. I don't want to deal with it, which is probably how they're feeling on the inside. <laughs> we all know Josh's name. But... They move towards him for the good of him. And so as humans, we have authority. We have power. What do we do with it? 
And the world would say, if you have authority and power, you use it for your own benefit. You use it to get up the ladder. You have to use it because nobody's looking out for you. You have to have power and you have to have control and you have to wield it for your own good because if you put it down, somebody else will grab it and then you're not going to be in the situation you want to be in. And the text again says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And man, I think he's talking to fathers specifically because of the power and authority, but he talks... In the, in the verse right before, about parents. So moms and dads have authority, right? And anytime we're over somebody, whether it's a work environment, we have some type of authority. So how do we use our authority well to love other people and not provoke them lest they become discouraged, not bully them, not poke at them? Last night we were at my son's summer league basketball game. He's in high school and he had two games. And the first game this is frustrating on multiple levels. Um, I, I played basketball, and so it's another level of frustration going like, why is this happening the way it's happening? Um, and so in between games, my wife and I left, and we went to kind of drive around and get some food. There was an hour between games, and um, I could just feel the frustration in my body. And there's apparently a car that they've never driven in their life or something like that, <laughs> which is hilarious because I have... My daughter's learning to drive, so you think I have a little more compassion and grace for this car that was in front of me. But like they're swerving and, and like, so I just laid on the horn. Not, not in like a mean way, but like, hey, figure it out. And then I'm like, what is my problem? Honestly, I'm like, okay, because I'm frustrated in another situation, I'm acting out in a way that is provoking that person. And I just felt like, what am I doing? Teaching on this tomorrow morning. Like, you would think I would have this somewhat figured out on some level. And even for us that are parents, like, why do we provoke our kids? We don't want to do that. No parent in their right mind wants to discourage their child. But you know what? We do it all the time. Why do we do that? Why can't we figure it out? Like, and our kids are just getting more and more discouraged. And then we feel too proud to apologize to them. We can make all types of rationalizations of why we raised our voice at them or why we said this thing to them this way. And Paul is going, as you grow and mature, God changes you. That quicker and quicker, that fuse becomes longer in the sense of you know what to do with it. So I'm not honking at the person that doesn't know how to drive in front of me. I'm going like, and if we had won the game and things worked out the way I want, do you think I would be honking at that person? I would, I'd be like, ah, oh, everything's great. So what does it look like for us to do this? I mean, parenting is hard, hard work, right? It's been said that until you get married, you don't realize how selfish you are, right? And until you have kids, you don't realize how angry you are, which I found to be somewhat true. So how do we stop this provoking? For us as parents, but also for us that lead other people who are on the highway uh, in the system of authority and power and control, what does it look like for us to come back to the gospel and realize we're different and we don't have to live that way? It's interesting, when I was doing some research on this, and again, researching the idea of bullying in our culture, um, one of the articles I came across uh, uh, 
was kind of like, okay, you realize that you are a bully based on these indicators. Now, again, I think it could kind of be overcorrected, like I can look at you one way and you bullied me. It's like, well, um, so that's why I think the definition is helpful to go like, you're improperly using your authority at the sake of someone else to make yourself feel better. That's what we're talking about, even in the provoking language. And so one article I came across was like, okay, you realize that if you're honest with yourself, uh, these are indicators that you're bullying other people. How do you stop? And it gave five things to help you stop your bullying. Here's the crazy thing. This is exactly what Paul is laying us into, right? So we're going to talk about those five things as an application kind of as we go to a close. But I put in parentheses in the midst of those five things, the Christian context. Because again, these things are just true because, uh, because of what Paul says is true of you in Christ. Now you're different. But if we take Jesus out of it, then all it is is moralism. All it is is pulling myself up from my bootstraps. And maybe it's good and you're not as bullying as much. But ultimately, you're not going to be changed. So what does it look like to kind of stop this kind of provoking behavior for those that we have authority over? The first one says, understand who you are. And specifically, understand who you are in Christ. You can go ahead and put that next slide up. So all the parentheses are my version of uh, what this article had said. Understand who you are. They're saying, if you want to stop bullying, you need to understand who you are, that you're not a bully. And I'm going, well, you might be. You need to understand who you are in Christ. And Paul lays out for us in Colossians 1 that you were dead. And now that you've been brought to life, you are in Christ. That is your new position. You've been changed. You don't have to live that way anymore. So the first way for us to stop this kind of provoking attitude of people we have authority over is understanding who we are in Christ. And we could just stop there because we don't understand who we are. Like in that moment yesterday on the road, I didn't understand who I was in Christ. I was caught up in those other things. They were dominating my mind and heart and emotion. So if I come back to going like, who am I in Jesus? That changes the way I interact with other people. So that's the first thing we need to understand as we're trying to stop this provoking attitude. The second thing is understanding why you're behaving this way. Understanding why you're behaving this way. And I would add to it, because of your old sinful patterns, right? Paul tells us in Colossians 3, right above this, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But in these things, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Understand that you are the way you are because of your old flesh nature and the habits that you grew up with. And Jesus needs to come in and change those things. If you let him, he will. But we have to understand why we're behaving this way. That's really, really a helpful thing. We gotta go below the waterline. So for me, last night, it's going like, why did I honk at that guy? Was that appropriate? Was that needed? Maybe. Probably not. <laughs> but it helps me understand, okay, why, why am I so agitated because of what just happened in the last hour? I'm agitated, and what do I need to do with that agitation, which is leading us to the next couple. The next one is understand you need others to help you. Understand, you need others to help you in the midst of this behavior. You cannot mature outside of the body of Christ. I add that to this, you need others to help you. 
We saw it in Colossians 1 as Paul saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your community. We need other people to pray for us to unwind those unhealthy rhythms that we have and create new ones in Christ. And then he says in Colossians 3 again that we are one body. We are meant to be together. I have a buddy who's one of my closest friends, and we're, we're in a, um, a kind of a group of accountability together. There's four men total. Uh, they live all over the country, and we get together and love each other. We've had lots of history with one another, and so we can afford really speaking truth into each other. We believe the best in each other. We need help with each other. And this last week, my friend texted me, and he's like, his oldest daughter ran away with her boyfriend. That he's been from the beginning, like, she has to get away from this dude. He's toxic. And he reaches out and texts us and says, pray. Would you pray for me? I'm undone. I call him on the phone. We're crying together. We need each other. You cannot handle this on your own. You can't. We need the body of Christ as we have authority over certain people to come alongside one another, to pray with one another, to cry with one another, to be in it with one another. She came home two days later. But they're still having to work through the issues. Another text he sent out said, hey, we're meeting with a counselor. Please pray for us because we don't know what to do. Not only do we need the body of Christ, we need other people around us speaking into some of these things. We need help. We cannot do it on our own. Otherwise, we're just going to provoke the people we have authority over. So understanding who you are in Christ Understand why you're behaving this way. Understand that you need others to help you. The fourth one, understand how to deal with stress is what the uh, psychology will tell us on how to stop bullying or provoking. And I added prayer and gratitude. How to have a heart of prayer and gratitude. And that's really where Paul goes in this next section after we go through what we're going to go through next week. The following section, he leads off with this application in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. How do you deal with the stress of those things? The answer is prayer. That we would ask God, that we would beg God to change our situation, to change our hearts. When you get angry at your kid and you kind of say something that discourages them, is your heart posture to go, Lord, help me not do that again? And do you go to them and apologize and you say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that? I think one of the beautiful things that we can model having authority as parents over our children is to apologize. To be humble, to say, man, I need, Dad needs Jesus too. Man, I mess up all the time. And not to rationalize why you did what you did or say what you said. And we need to come back to prayer and ask God to change us. He can change us. But often we don't want to have the humility or we don't know how to pray. We don't know exactly what that means. And so we just don't do it. And we need to understand what it means to be men and women of prayer as we're over different people. The last one of how do you kind of stop this provoking attitude of people you have authority over is understand the impact it's having on others. And they're being discouraged is what Paul tells us in the text. And then we'll get to it next week. But in verse 25 in this context, uh, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. He's saying, listen, there's gonna be account. So there's going to be an account for the way I talk to my son or my daughter. I have to realize that instead of just going like, ah, oh, it's not that big a deal, then doing what my flesh wants to do. 
All of these things are backed by science, but it's because it's what's true. And what Paul is telling us, listen, we don't want to provoke the people we have authority of. We want to handle our authority well. We want to understand who we are in Christ. We want to understand why we're behaving the way we're behaving. We want to understand what it looks like to have other people come around us in this journey. We're not doing it alone. We need to understand how to deal with stress properly through prayer and thanksgiving and gratitude. And we need to understand that there's an impact that it's having on the people we lead. Man, I want that to be true. And I need God's spirit to change me. Because I don't want to provoke people I lead, whether it's my kids or anyone else. And as we close and we think about this idea of authority and agency being indicators of our maturity, that Paul is going like, I want you to mature in Christ. You have agency, you have authority, use it well. How do we not look to the person of Jesus? What does he do with his agency and what does he do with his authority? The truest mark of maturity is the person of Christ. And we see Jesus using his authority well. Philippians chapter two, verses one through eight. Paul is writing this group of other church members and he says this about Jesus, the way he uses his agency and authority. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus uses his agency, his will, and his authority to come down to death to love us well. And man, we need to be reminded of who we are in him so we can lead others in that way. Not only do we have a loving God in Jesus, but the Father also shows us this kind of model of maturity. We have a loving Father who does not provoke us, but uses his agency and authority to send his son to die for us so that we can be made free. May we be people reminded of who we are in Christ and because of that, put agency and authority in their proper place. Let's pray. Father, we need, again, you to help us with this. Some of us don't feel like we have any agency, even though we do because we're found in you, because, Jesus, you have saved us and you've given us value inherently, not based on our culture, but based on your son. And then, Father, those of us that are in positions of authority, would you help us understand what it looks like to lead well and not provoke based on what's going on in our heart and our mind, but that we would come back to who we are in you, and that would give us a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, that we'd have people come around us, that we would understand what it looks like to move forward in love, and that when we screw up, which we will, we would have humility to apologize and change. God, we want to be people that are different. We don't want to look like the world looks when it comes to leadership. We want to look like Jesus, you. So help us in the midst of what is true of your kingdom. Your kingdom is different than the world's kingdom. Help us live into it 
this morning. We ask that you would do it in and through us. Pray in your name. Amen.